We were actually, uh, me and my friend here. It points to a cat. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, your friend's with a cat. Yes, he's, he's one of those uh, Dreamlands cats. So uh, he's more than a cat. Yes, and he is very lucky to consider myself his friend. What did he say? He said that I was lucky to consider myself his friend. Oh, okay. I, I do feel that way. Okay. Uh, I don't have too many friends. You really aren't that bright, are you? No. (laughs) Hey, it's me, Adam, the DM over at Microphones and Monsters. You just got done listening to a short clip from our show. Microphones and Monsters is a Cthulhu Mythos 5th edition actual play podcast. We ask you to join us every week, Monday and Friday. You can find us on your favorite podcatcher, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find all of our links at microphonesandmonsters.com. Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. This is a true crime and horror podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I'm your host, Alexandria Youngray, with my lovely co-host, Sunshine Bellon. What up, people? So, today we are starting a series on Jack the Ripper, but not really Jack the Ripper. Instead, we are taking... A different approach than most podcasts would, and covering the victims of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, victims' rights. So, this is 80% because for my birthday, my sister-in-law got me a book called uh, The Five, which is literally about the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper by Haley Rubenhold. And she did just a metric butt-ton of research. She went into everything that she could possibly dig up to actually piece together the lives that these women led instead of just (sighs) the assumptions that were made by the police and then made by the newspapers and then literally carried out throughout the rest of eternity for the last 150 years. And repeated with other victims. Absolutely. Yeah, like, I think... I think this is... So... One of the things that we really like to do with this podcast is cover... Stories that are societally super impactful, but hopefully in a unique way. Like sociological kind of turning point stories. Exactly. And this is not the first serial killer. We've literally covered older serial killers than this. But this is the first time that a serial killer gained the kind of notoriety that Jack the Ripper did. As you can mm-hmm. tell from the fact that, I mean, canonically, he only killed five women, which 
compared to a lot of other serial killers, is not that much. Mm-hmm. But he is, like, there are literally people who call themselves ripperologists because they are experts in Jack the Ripper. Right, he's inspired a whole, like, culture. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and so he's basically the first, I guess, popular serial killer? Or, like, archetypal serial killer, maybe? Maybe. But basically, the first, I, I think that this is the first example that I'm aware of where the people just absolutely flipped their shit and became fascinated in the story of the serial killer himself. Yeah. And the serial killings themselves. So again, the culture that gets developed around him. Or around the idea of him, really. like doesn't Exactly. Like- the idea of him. Because I actually, so I've never really been that fascinated in unsolved serial killers because I want to know the story. And so, you know, I always researched the Jeffrey Dahmers and the Ted Bundys because I wanted to know what their childhood was like. And right, you want to follow the thread the whole way. I want to follow the thread the whole way. And, you know, stuff like Jack the Ripper and the Zodiac Killer and uh, even the Black Dahlia murder were all, they felt incomplete. Well, sometimes and it's that's hard not to see exactly. Right. Well, it's hard to see exactly what, to draw any kind of meaningful conclusion about society or about... Mm-hmm. Even just, you know, changing your perspective when you don't have the full story is difficult. Yeah. And, like, I want to look at the story and be like, why did this happen? Mm -hmm. And when you don't know who the killer is, you can't really You can't kind of, like, reverse engineer that process. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's more to the Jack the Ripper story than just why did a person murder these women. In this situation, there's why were these women so vulnerable? And why did their stories get rewritten the way they were? Right, that made it so kind of acceptable. Because the story that the society has told us for the last 150 years or so about the victims of Jack the Ripper is not accurate yeah to say the least surprise surprise (laughs) and does a fair share of feeding into like a fear-mongering slut-shaming culture exactly yeah so so you know acknowledging resources like 80 percent of the research for this was literally done by reading the five it's an absolutely tremendous book. So if you'd like to know more. Yeah, absolutely. I recommend it. It's very well written and insanely well researched. Um, but that's what most of this story is coming from. And 
basically, so we're gonna, I'm just gonna start with a background story. We'll talk about Victorian England and the way things were, and I'll do a quick rundown of, so, so there are five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, but these five murders actually happened in the middle of 13 murders known as the Whitechapel murders that were distinguished because they all happened, you know, in or very near to Whitechapel and were unsolved and featured, you know, disenfranchised women as the victim. Mm-hmm. And so I'll do a quick retelling of the Whitechapel murders just to give everybody context because when I actually tell the story of these women, the murderer themselves will will not be strongly featured. Yeah, will not be strongly featured. So this episode is basically the expose episode where we talk about the you know the story around it, and then we're gonna have five more episodes that will be each dedicated to the actual life story of these five women. Sounds good. So let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, let's. All right. So. Let's start with just, you know, Victorian England. What what do you mm-hmm. think of when you think of Victorian England? Dresses that stop at the ankle. <laughs> Dresses that stop at the ankle. <laughs> Specifically, you know, late 1800s London. Oh, I think of it being really dirty. Word. And lots of street people. Lots of street and people. <laughs> Very fancy clothes and I don't know, lots of poor people. Word. Okay, yeah. No, actually that's a very accurate I mean it's super, super vague, but very accurate. Yes. <laughs> you know, there really is two Victorian Englands. There's, you know, this super, super fancy, like high tea incredibly mm-hmm. gorgeous Pinkies dresses out, lace gloves mm-hmm. oh, yes, um, i'm building that picture yeah the the greenhouse sitting rooms with mm-hmm. all the fancy men folk with their mustaches yeah. and their yellow suits some some oscar wilde shit mm-hmm. i should have thought of that i was telling sam he needed to dress like that the other day like an oscar wilde victorian hon 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 Yes. <laughs> <laughs> word, word, word. Um, but then there's the other side. There's the Dickensian, you know, poverty and workhouses. and the streets, terrible. Yeah, yeah. Disease and dirtiness and no fucking social support. So this story is about... Dickensian Victorian England. It's about to get dark, y'all. It's about to get dark. There is there is very little Victorian Victorian England in uh 
in Whitechapel. Yes, very so, very little propriety. Yeah. So we're going to focus on London's East End, which is like, especially in, you know, the late 1800s, a little bit of a gnarly place as far as like poverty goes. Mm-hmm. So London was already crowded and economic disparities were high. Uh, many classic jobs were lost to industrialization. So a lot okay. of like, so, like trade factory classes. machine took my job. Yeah, exactly. I used to weave my own fabric and now nope. Yeah. I mean, you know, woodworking and and blacksmithing and fabric making and and all of the all of the creation of stuff classes or trades right. were being slowly replaced by mm-hmm. factories which meant that people were becoming unemployed and uh if they wanted to become employed again they had to take a right their work was worth less yes exactly because they were helping a machine do their job as opposed to doing their job yeah that meant that people were entering you know the dangerous and arduous work of factory labor or unemployment entirely right and then add to that there was an influx of immigrants from ireland's potato famine oh so there's even more poor people with the scarce resources yep so so at this time there was an influx of people from ireland because of the potato famine as well as Jewish folk escaping Eastern Europe's pogroms. Oh, yeah. That's nice. And so work was hard to get and hard to keep. Jeez. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this is like pre-union stuff. And so if you were like, I'm not getting paid enough. And also I lost a finger to your fucking shit machine. They were like, all right, I'll hire somebody else that's willing to do the job for less. Right. Yeah, no no workers protection whatsoever. Yeah, there there was no systems in place to protect people who were in these situations. So add to that, unskilled laborers were paid super poorly. Again, you know, no systems for protection. So one example that was brought up in the five is uh, that a sandwich board man, who was literally somebody who carried an advertisement sign. Oh, yeah. Would be paid one shilling, eight pence for the day. So 20 pence. And we'll get into, like, how much that would buy you. But that's kind of low end. Mm-hmm. And that's assuming you could get the job. Because <laughs> a lot of times people who were unemployed, work was sparse. Right. So you might make 20 pence for the day and that'd buy you a bed for the night and some food or maybe a bed for a couple of nights in a, in a lodging house. But you may not have work the next day. Exactly. And then, again, you know, back to the uh, unemployment stuff, in the later half of the Long Depression, which was a worldwide economic recession... Mm-hmm. Which, depending on various sources, 
lasted from 1873 to 1896. Oh, so a good, like, 23 years. Yeah. Now, there were ups and downs in that. Like, the beginning mm-hmm. and the end, like, the very beginning and the very tail end were the most depression of the Long Depression. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the reason that it's tied together. Okay. Okay. I think they were two separate depressions, but basically. It was kind of like COVID. There was never a, there was never a second wave because it never got quite good enough. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's all of the, there's, there's the, oh, the third wave of COVID. And it's like, I don't remember the last wave ending. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's why different sources vary on how long it was. Mm-hmm. Um, because they were essentially, uh, two or three distinct depressions, but they, you know, they left a worldwide impact. Didn't really have enough of a break between them to, like, <laughs> justify separating yeah. them. Yeah, and, and also, like, it still left the world hurting, recession-wise. Yeah. But, you know, we're in the later half of the Long Depression, so finding work, skilled or unskilled, was not always available, because an economic depression that was fucking global. Right. Which meant many individuals and sometimes intact families would rather sleep rough than face the deplorable conditions of the workhouse. And now we will get into the workhouse. So we talked about debtors prisons when we started our prison Mm -hmm. industrial complex episodes which we will get back to, I promise. This is similar in, like, its harshness and also just in, like, the reflection of how society views the poor. Right. Like, more tough love. If that makes sense. Like, just work harder. Yeah, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, you don't deserve handouts. Blah, blah, blah. It's it's Mm -hmm. super reflective of how we literally still view the poor. Right, if you're poor, it's because you're lazy. Or, like, mm-hmm. no, no, if you're lazy. Yeah, we don't believe in, you know, bad luck or, you know, being born with certain privileges or being born with certain right, which marginalized is like classes. Right, literally how life works. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, the, it, it actually, <laughs> you know, good or bad luck and who your parents are, are actually what is going to define your life. But sure, sure, sure. It's how hard you work and, and literally nothing else. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. Because there's yeah. not like statistics or anything that would back up, you know, the whole old money. Like if you have money, you're going to make more money. If you come from a wealthy mm-hmm. family, you're fine. Yeah, no, literally cool. the the wealth of your great 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 grandparents is more indicative of how much money you will how have. How prosperous you will be than life. your actual effort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But but no, no, no. It's definitely, you know, bootstraps, tough love, poor people are lazy, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yes, it's, definitely. It's it's insanely reflective of how we still view people in poverty which also i think is why i'm excited about the rest of this episode because just like their their views on the poor are reflective of what's still going on now definitely it sounds like their views of women <laughs> their, yeah their views of women 
and how women become victimized are also yeah. still very heavily like steeped in our culture. Yeah. So, I mean, God, it kind of makes me think maybe we should do an episode that is literally just on the um, psychological bias that is belief in a just world. Right? <laughs> because that's what causes this, is that, like, we... The it delusion is, it is of difficult, justice. Mm-hmm, it, is, it is difficult to come to terms with the fact that the world is unfair. Right, Everybody the knows the world people. is unfair, but nobody, but wants, nobody wants to believe, to believe it. Yeah, because, not at all. because that level of chaos takes away all control, you know? Right, it's terrifying. It's very scary. And so we're like, oh, well, the world has to be just. Like, you know, the concept of karma, you know? Yeah. And I, and I don't mean to be dismissive of something that even I kind of attribute, like, some of my beliefs to but like just the con like the concept well i think you can you can like resonate with an idea and still also recognize that like you can see the sort of human psychological reasons for why that might be comforting to believe Mm -hmm. yeah and so you know we we have this innate human nature need to believe that the world is fair because otherwise the world is chaos and that's terrifying. And so if poor people are poor and suffering, it is because they are lazy. And if women are victimized, it is not because Because women are more likely to be victimized because we have a sexist society. It is because that woman did something morally degenerate and deserved to be victimized. Ouch. I mean, it's literally, it's the same reason that, that, you know, when an unarmed black person is shot by the police, we interrogate their entire life and find that one time right, that a teacher said that maybe they were smoking pot once. And when a fucking, you know, white nationalist, like, shoots up a school or you know a nice little white boy in college rapes a person we look into their academic record and find all of the good things they've done Mm -hmm. you know because we have this need to like balance things out and maintain the status quo even though that's not how it fucking works yeah you can shuffle the papers all you want but it doesn't yeah yeah (laughs) Um, I think, I I think having a discussion about that was actually pretty relevant. Um, yes, because, because yeah, that is the reason that this shit of Jack the Ripper. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and that is the reason that this shit continues ignored and poorly reasoned social inequity leading to horror. (laughs) Because we don't want to believe that. That chaos is really the the reigning feature of existence. (laughs) (laughs) Suck it up, buttercup. Deal with the chaos. Suck it up, buttercup. Hell yeah. So um, in 1834, the Poor Law Amendment Act was introduced. In this, the government believed that the poor relied too heavily on charity and living off handouts. Uh, so the poor law made it so that people in extreme poverty could no longer receive charity, particularly from local parishes, while in their own homes. They were no longer allowed to stay in their homes and receive financial aid. Instead, 
if they wished to receive any aid at all, they had to be willing to enter the workhouse. So reduce your conditions even further in order to get help. Yes. Yeah. And like, we're going to talk about that because like it, for the most part, only made things worse. It was so far from a solution I could puke. So in order to ensure that only the extremely needy were receiving aid from the workhouse, conditions were particularly harsh. So families were separated. That's nice. Make it intentionally terrible. Exactly. Like, and, and, and like, you can see this in, again, like, talk about how this is still reflective. Um, you know, I've done a little bit of work on uh, social security income, mm-hmm. like uh, disability, social security, and like other kinds of social security. Oh, uh, what, what is the word for it? Um, welfare. I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot the word for welfare. Anyway, yeah. So, so I've, I've worked <gasps> some with welfare. In order to prove disability, you have to like, <laughs> you have to continue, like you have to work your ass off to prove that you can't work to get social security disability insurance. Right, I, that actually reminds me a lot of um, of what my mom would talk about. You know, she, even though she was a single mother and we were really poor when I was growing up, she very rarely um, took advantage of any kind of government programs because it, she always used to tell me it was like another full-time job just trying to, like, prove, continually prove and reprove that she deserved benefits hmm yeah and and also you know the social stigma mm. that that surrounded welfare back in 1834 is also reflective of the social stigma that surrounds welfare now mm-hmm. because completely we like for some reason we believe that if you are going to receive government aid you deserve to be punished for that by being shamed by society. Right. Prove how needy you are so we like while we look down on you. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and that is reflective, you know, then and now. Yeah. And, you know, that whole, you know, that whole uh it was a full-time job to prove that you were worthy of government help. Mm-hmm. Again, reflective then and now, and again, actually counterproductive <laughs> because it literally... Right, yeah, if you have to put a whole ton... Yeah, it makes it so that you have to waste all of this time and energy that you could be spending... Actually moving forward. Yeah, exactly. So, again, in order to ensure the extremely needy were receiving aid from the workhouse, conditions were particularly harsh. Mm-hmm. We just kind of talked about that. Yeah. So, the way these conditions were harsh, uh, families were separated, men and women were placed in separate dorms, so husbands and wives had to be placed in separate dorms, and children over the age of seven were further isolated from their parents and placed in workhouse schools. Ugh. And there were some pros and cons of that, because I think it was 1877, when mm-hmm. school became compulsory, which meant that, you know, 
children in poverty were receiving an education. But again, they were separated from their families. Well, and do we know anything about the quality of the education they received? I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that were kind of uh, considered educational at that time that maybe were actually totally uncouth. Like, wouldn't this have been around the same time where in the United States, Native Americans are being rounded up and sent to boarding schools and shit? Like, I don't trust what they might consider to be school at that at that phase in history. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the this is a time when literally being literate put you ahead of others. Right. But if we're talking about like families who worked in a trade, a lot of families basically believed that superfluous education was just that. It was superfluous. Yeah. So, you know, learning how to read or learning history when you're a blacksmith was so yeah. useless to them. And... Right, I guess more what I was thinking about is clearly in Victorian era England, an education did not actually uh, lead to upward mobility. Just like it does, you know what I mean? Just kind of like what we right. were talking about earlier, the whole luck and, and, and most of all privilege. Like... Yeah. I just don't think we should oversell the value of, of, you know, some poor street kid getting to go to school when, like, is that really going to lead to meaningful improvement in their life? I mean, there there were some some things that they taught them that were valuable. Yeah, that's good. But I guess uh, it's complicated. That's our first it's complicated <laughs> for the episode. It's complicated! It's complicated! <laughs> but, uh, y- yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, I, me, I value education for the sake of education. Right. I am extremely privileged for that. Right. That's, that's a privileged position to be in when you can value education for the sake of education. That is absolutely privileged because I am middle class. I have a profession. I have a career, which means that any education that I get that is superfluous is actually, what's a word? Enriching. It is enriching. Yeah, it's just enriching. Yeah. Any further education is enriching. And that is and that is absolutely a privilege of mine. Mm-hmm. Um whereas, you know, a lot of these kids who were <sighs> children of trade families who had lost mm-hmm. their careers to industrialization, um, education was superfluous. Because they weren't, they weren't going to become a lawyer. No. They were going to become a factory hand. And knowing, you know, history didn't help them with their career. No. But learning how to read, especially in like 1834, helped everybody. Literacy was a huge fucking deal. Oh, I so, definitely am pro pro literacy, even in the Victorian era, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm pro education, but like in this situation, education was. I mean, fuck. Like these kids were getting supervised. Like, there's nothing wrong with sending them to school, but yeah. Again, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, and that is where the complexity comes up. Is that like a lot of these families felt that. more education than was necessary to do whatever job they were going to do was unnecessary. So, 
the family separation was tough for families. Um, beyond that, you know, the conditions were both, you know, deplorable in that they sucked to live in, and also they were shameful. What's the word I'm looking for? Shaming? Degrading? Degrading. They were degrading. So Intentionally, when people, though, right? I mean, by design. Absolutely, it was by, by design. So when people entered the workhouse, they were stripped of their clothes and their belongings, and they were made to bathe in water that had already been used by every other person who had already entered the oh, workhouse yeah. that day. Which That's is disgusting really just... and disease-ridden. Like, is that, that even, that's not even better. That's, that's not, that's, that's, I would just rather stay dirty. <laughs> Fair. Then individuals were given a workhouse uniform that they were made to wear for the rest of their stay. So, you know, basically the fucking burlap sack oversized Yeah, the uniform thing, thing seems weird to me. I mean, like, again. Maybe give them clothes if they need them, but like, eh. It, it's it's made to degrade you. You know, it's made to take away your personhood. And it's made to make you feel like just one of these workhouse people. Um, so yeah, workhouse uniform. Uh, beyond that, the food was notoriously bad. Uh, oh, man. Spit in the ghoul. Kind of, yeah. Okay, so meals were based around this watery porridge called Skilly. Oh. This is where it gets super Dickensian, you know, like the Oliver Twist, please, sir, mm-hmm. want some more. And then uh, there was also, like, low-quality bread, cheese, and potatoes. Sometimes there was meat. And complaints were common over having to pick rat turds out of the Skilly. Oh. Which reminds me of... um. This is this is so extra, and I might cut it down for time, but this story... So, my great-grandpa was in World War II in the Navy, and he has these stories of how weevils would get into the, the flower. Mm-hmm. And if you're on a boat, you don't fucking throw out the flower when it gets weevils in it. Yeah, you don't. You eat the weevil flower. And Did they have like a sifter or something? Like apparently they would just pretend that the weevils were raisins. So it was like, oh, this is raisin bread. That's upsetting. And, and what makes that like I didn't realize this until literally after he had passed away. But my grandpa's favorite cookie was oatmeal raisin. Oatmeal raisin. <laughs> And, like, retrospectively, it's like, Grandpa, that's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, no. You should not be thinking back fondly on that. (laughs) And so, and so, when I read the, you know, the rat turds in the skillet, I'm like, I wonder if they just pretended that there were raisins in their porridge. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, that was a thing that that reminded me of. Dang. So, as 
as payment for the food and shelter and also the sometimes schooling for their children, any able-bodied person was expected to work. Men were tasked with breaking rocks, pumping water, milling corn, and chopping wood. Women were tasked with cleaning, laundering, and preparing food. Both men and women could be tasked with picking oakum, which was a task where they used a spike in their bare hands to pull apart ship's ropes so the fibers could be used in caulking ships. Weird. Okay. Yeah. Which sounds honestly miserable. Yeah, pulling apart big spikes. Like, have you ever touched ropes? those awful fibers? Oh, that sounds bad. Yeah. Like, working with that all day? Oh my god, your poor hands. So, basically, entering the workhouse meant subjecting oneself to hunger, poor sanitation, and poor sleep in a crowded dormitory on a pallet bed. Illness was common, as well as violence both from other inmates and staff. Well, that's nice because the staff are always a bonus. Exactly. Yeah. Um,. Because, you know, this happens with any organization where there is a person in power over people who are literally meant to be treated as less than human. Right. If they're intentionally degrading them, of course, that's going to open things up perfectly for abuse and Mm -hmm. criminal behavior. Because your job is to be a caretaker over people who you are trying to make feel less than human. Yeah. So... And again, this is something that we talked about, you know, for a second earlier, on top of the poor conditions of the workhouse was the social stigma against it. Yeah. And the system was designed this way to discourage people from using it unless they absolutely needed to. And I'm sure tons and tons of people still absolutely needed to. Absolutely. (laughs) And, and and that's why, you know, I ended the last section with saying that, like, many people, including intact families, would rather sleep rough than go into the workhouse. Yeah, I can see why. It does not sound so, like anything I'd want to do, and I've been in a pretty bad way before. Yeah. Um, and so the thing is, on top of all of that, the workhouse, while providing fruit and shelter, did not provide almost any opportunities. A discharged inmate was provided one final meal and a bit of bread meant to tide them over until they could find work and a place to stay. No money had been earned or saved. No connections. They weren't networking with the other incredibly impoverished people. So, you know, you go into a very ineffective social program. It was a very ineffective social program. It... It was made to make it so that poor people could no longer receive aid um, in a way that enabled them to maintain any level of dignity. Yeah. And that's the only thing that it achieved. Which is robbing poor people of dignity and making their conditions worse oftentimes. Yeah. Because that's what it was made for. The system was designed that way. <laughs> Gotta love systematic fuckery. Yeah. Or systemic so, fuckery, I should say. Systemic, yeah. Systemic, systematic. Both, both, both. So yeah. let's get into what people did instead of opting for the workhouse. What did they do? 
So we're going to get into tramping and casual wards. So tramping was not uncommon for the homeless during this period of time. Mm -hmm. A tramp lived a life of constant movement, taking on itinerant work, begging, and sometimes using criminal means or sex work to get by. Which sounds about right. Unfortunately, the vagrancy laws made it so there was no distinction between these different means of supporting oneself. Oh. If you were if you were working a legitimate job that was a temp job or begging, uh, you were treated exactly the same as if you were using theft or sex work to get by. Basically, anyone who lived in the street was a nuisance. Period. Just hands down across the board. Yeah. So, every day, tramps lived in constant search for work, food, and shelter, and time was split between lodging houses, work houses, and the streets. <sighs> now, some tramps claimed to enjoy the lifestyle because of the freedom it gave them, but the majority lived this life out of unluck and necessity. Well, and I'm sure even the ones who claimed to enjoy it probably wouldn't have done it if they had another option. It's complicated. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that in some of the further stories. Um, the the second the second story that we're gonna tell is like <sighs> the saddest. It's just it's just it's just it's just sad. It's just sad. We'll get into it. So that's that's tramping. Now part of the poor law, which was what established the workhouses established that temporary overnight shelter must be provided for anyone destitute and in need of immediate relief. Okay. Now, this is where the casual ward of a workhouse came in. That said, the casual ward was not any more comfortable than the workhouse proper, but the condensed time spent there probably made it more bearable for some people. Okay, because it was like a shorter stay thing. Yeah. Because if you went into the workhouse, you went in for a while. Like, you probably spent months to possibly years in there. Wow. Right, because so, how would you get out? Like, what? Like, you could check yourself out any time, but right, like, what are you going to do? Yeah, what's, what's your exactly. better option? Yeah. So, and, and, um... Polly, who is the first story that we're going to tell, she spent some time in the workhouse proper. And so we'll talk about her time in the workhouse. So by the end of the 19th century, entering the casual ward workhouse involved this process. A line would begin to form in the late afternoon and admission began around 5 or 6 p.m. There was no guarantee that a bed was available. Because it was kind of like first come, first serve. Yep, exactly. Then inmates were locked in at 7 p.m. Wow, that's not very much time to get in and get locked up. Yep, well, that's why the line would form in the late afternoon. Then uh, they'd be fed a meal of skilly and bread and stripped of their clothes, which would be stoved at high temperatures to kill the fleas. 
Oh, yeah. Then they were made to bathe in the communal tubs. Ugh, which made to I talked in about. communal tubs. That's so gross. I Every person so that had already entered the workhouse that day had already bathed in. You know, if you came in, if you were the last person in there, you were bathing in black goop. Ugh. Then they were given a nightshirt and expected to sleep in the crowded dormitories on a straw mattress, while others around them may be up sick, nursing crying children, or simply talking and singing into the night. The, de- the next day, inmates were expected to work a full day's work for the meals that day and, the- and one more night of shelter, and then they were released at 9 a.m. the next morning. And they couldn't leave earlier. Like I said, they were locked in. Oh, yeah. That's terrible. 9 a.m. is very late. Yes. Exactly. So most jobs started before 9 a.m. And that's not even considering the fact that they would require some time to walk to. Right. So there was just no option. Like, you literally could not be released earlier. Mm-hmm. So counterproductive. And that literally made it so that finding work and money for the following night, extremely difficult. And the law prohibited vagrants from returning to the same communal ward within a 30-day period. So most tramps wound up in a constantly moving circuit around London. Right, just hopping on the merry-go-round, that's all they can do. Yeah, from casual ward to casual ward, maybe occasionally they'd beg enough coins to stay in a lodging house for the night. Sometimes they would just fucking sleep rough in a circuit around London. Ugh, that's so terrible. Yep. So, beyond the casual ward making finding work the following day a near impossibility, for an alcoholic, which was not uncommon among tramps, it made drinking for two nights impossible. Oh, yeah. Which meant that people really did regularly choose to just sleep on the streets instead of checking themselves well, into your life li- i mean if you're that alcohol dependent that is literally dangerous yeah i can see why and i can see yeah. how that level of dependency could easily develop for a very large number of people in those circumstances yeah absolutely and that so something that that we're gonna talk about throughout this series is <sighs> There's this belief that Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes, and three out of his five canonical victims, Mm -hmm. there is no evidence to support that they ever used sex work to get by. Ever. So then what is the commonality between them? Like, all five, Um, what would they all have in common, besides being women? uh, They were all women. They were all impoverished. Um... They were all in and around Whitechapel. And for most of them, they were all homeless. And we'll get into that. But for most of them, (laughs) the real commonality was alcoholism. That's what exactly what I was wondering. I was like, really surprised you didn't just immediately say they were all alcoholics. Because, yeah, that's... That makes the most sense right there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing is, there's really only one woman who, who, like, in this story of the five women, Mm -hmm. who I can 
confidently say was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. The rest of them certainly used alcohol. And some of them, it certainly didn't help their life. Right. Well, and I can, you know, looking back through the lens of history to really assess, you know, alcoholism is such like a, I don't know, I want to say like a cultural thing, right? Like a dependency. You can have a dependency, but like, is it going to be impacting your life negatively or positively, right? Like, is it helping them to get by in a really fucked up situation? Or is it to the point where if they don't drink, they get the shakes and they're going to die? Like, yeah. So, so I can say that one of these women was alcohol dependent and her alcoholism literally ruined her life. Yeah. The rest of these women used alcohol to get by. Yeah. Especially because, like, you know, this is, like, the Victorian era. Like, our understanding of bacteria, our understanding of water purification was mediocre at best. Yeah. And so, slightly alcoholic drinks was the way to drink water safely. Yeah. Like, and so, (laughs) you know... Slipping into alcoholism because of the use of these weird, like... Because people were walking around with a low-level buzz most of the day anyway. Yeah. It was really common to just always have a light beer, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like, the relation... And and also, like, there was, like, this was also the time of, like, um, the teetotaling, like, party. Yeah. Like, teetotaling as an identity. Um, and so, like, alcohol was just, like, a weird, it was very different to what it is today. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into that more when we start telling these women's stories. Because, like, each woman's relationship with alcohol is very different. different. Interesting. And, and, um, there's only one woman who I can, like, confidently say, like, she was an alcoholic and her alcohol use ruined her life. Right. right. And, and I mean, that's that's kind of what what we're doing this series for is <laughs> each of these women was a was a unique person. Right. Their story is different, you know? It's not, oh, Jack the Ripper, this this mysterious man. I wonder who he could be. He's probably this guy or this guy or this guy or this guy. He killed five prostitute. <laughs> like, we know these women. We know who they are. We don't know who Jack the Ripper is. We can't actually tell his story. But we know who these women are. We can tell their story. Which is pretty sweet. So that's why we're doing this series. <laughs> so... Back to vagrancy and workhouses and all that jazz. You know, blah, blah, blah. Alcoholism made it so that a lot of people would rather sleep rough than go into the workhouse because that meant two days of not drinking. Mm -hmm. At this time, at this period of time that we're talking about, an estimated 700,000 people awoke every morning with no idea where they would sleep that night. Holy shit. That's so many people. That's a lot of fucking homeless people. So, beyond that, a vagrant woman was particularly vulnerable to violence. Well, go figure. Especially sexual violence. I think that's still the case with homeless women. It absolutely is. 
Absolutely. Because, like, vagrancy makes you susceptible to violence. That is true because you are just literally more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But as a woman... Hands down, that's going to happen. Yeah. So a woman at a workhouse or in the casual wards may find that the person who held the dormitory key to the female wing was an unscrupulous man. And any attempt to voice a concern would be met with apathy at best. Mm, Great. And literally, by dressing in ragged clothing, a woman would find herself verbally and sometimes physically assaulted by male strangers who assumed that her low social status was reflective of her even lower morals. That's nice. Let's be verbally abusive to women. Don't we love that? Don't we just love it? We love to see it. Mm. So, and, and, and this is something that um, was brought up in The Five, mm-hmm. was these, um, like, basically early sociologists performing, like, interesting social experiments. Mm-hmm. There was a woman who literally just was like, I'm going to try out tramping. I'm going to see what it's like in the workhouse. I'm going to see what it's like. You know, literally to dress more raggedly. And she immediately noticed that people started treating her poorly. And treating yeah. her like she must have been a sex worker. Oh, that's nice. So, like, a like very just specific presuming type that of she poorly. Was a sex worker. Yeah. Which, again, is reflective of how these women were labeled prostitutes. Mm-hmm. When a lot well, of times this- they weren't. It sounds just a lot like what we're familiar with from other scenarios where dehumanizing people, like, makes them an easier target. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many women tramps in, you know, in this situation found that it was necessary to take up with a man. Yeah, like you do. Because... Reasons. So, while accompanying a man may protect her from unwanted advances from other men, this free lifestyle further contributed to a stereotype firmly held by society and police that all vagrant women were prostitutes. Right, because living with one guy to make sure your needs are met is totally prostitution. That's the same I that's mean, like the same thing as saying that getting married is prostituting if you're if you're not working. Like Well, the the thing is we're looking at Victorian England moral standards. Mm-hmm. Societal standards. Yeah, the, the mor- m- standards of morality. You were having sex out of wedlock. Yeah. You were a fallen woman. End of story. Right, having sex out of wedlock is inherently prostitution. Exactly. And we'll, we'll get into that in a later section. Oy. It's fun. So now let's talk about low-income housing and lodging houses. Let's. So lower-income housing was being destroyed in order to make way for railroads and thoroughfares, mm-hmm. which limited housing, which increased rent costs. Right? That follows. Yep. So a single laboring class family might rent two small rooms or one large room to house their whole family. And these buildings were likely to feature damp interiors with soot-blackened ceilings and rotten floorboards. 
Broken or ill-fitted windows would let the rain and wind in. Clogged chimneys blew smoke back into rooms. And combining that with London's frequent yellow fogs, respiratory illnesses were common. Gross. To make matters worse, the people of London had limited access to clean water and sufficient drainage. Which meant that cholera, typhus, and something they literally just called fever broke out regularly, particularly in warmer months where stagnant water. That's so gross. Yep. So this period without much economic security and one or two changes in a family could be the difference between a comfortable life and the workhouse. Just bring everything down. Yep. Whitechapel was not the only home for extreme poverty. But it certainly became the most infamous. Mm, Infamy. Yes. So police specifically avoided Spitalfields, which is a gnarly area. I think I have it in the outline. So you've at least seen the picture, but it's a picture of the people on the road. Yeah, yeah. That really fucked up looking street. Mm Mm-hmm. And it is literally, it is photographed from 1902 from, or for, uh, Jack London's book, The People of the Abyss, which is literally about poverty in London's East End. So, yeah, so police specifically avoided Spitalfields. So in particular, the police avoided Dorset Street, Thrall Street, and Flower and Dean Street, Mm -hmm. which are all streets that are in the Spitalfields. (laughs) They are in Spitalfields. (laughs) And they are also streets that these women frequented. Mm -hmm. Um, In the book. You hear that, listeners? That's real paper. It exists. Yes. Yes, I have. I have. Books that are bound. (laughs) Whatever. It's exciting. It's soft back. That's some good asthma right there. uh, It's not the, the bookiest. Let's see. There's a last address on Dorset Street, as well as a murder just off of Dorset Street. Several last addresses just off of Flower and Dean Street. Um, and Thrall Street was basically the main thoroughfare, but there were also several murders just off of Thrall Street. Hmm. Very good resource. Love maps. Yeah. I'll have to I'll have to post that on our Instagram as well because mm-hmm. it's a really really helpful chart to get my head around a place that I've never been right <laughs> uh, especially one that's 150 years old <laughs> you know looking at a map that's like okay I've never been here but also like this is of a here that's not here the anymore. older version of it. Yeah. <laughs> But, but yeah, so basically these streets that police were particularly cautious of were places that these women frequented, mm-hmm. as well as, like, the smaller roads that went off of them. So, like, these were main streets, and then there were the little roads that went off yeah. of them. And, like, I, so the streets themselves featured broken pavement, dim gaslights, slicks of sewage, stagnant pools of disease-breeding water and rubbish-filled roadways. 
the people of the streets themselves faced alcoholism, malnutrition, disease, and violence, domestic or otherwise. Very evocative imagery. It sounds terrible. Yes. I was specifically pulled from the book. So, you know, that was these main streets. The little roads off of them basically didn't even have gas lights. Right. Okay. And they had, they featured like tall walls. Mm -hmm. And of course, you've got the pollution of London. So these off streets were so fucking dark at night. Okay, I can picture what you're saying now. Yeah. Alleys between two big buildings would be really dark. Yeah. And, and, you know, those little off streets, you know, sometimes they'd be lined with like, yards and ah. we'll we'll get into it when we're talking about like the the final days mm-hmm. of each of these women like where they where they went physically but yeah no if you're if you're walking down an alley that's lined with tall walls and there's no light sources because this is pre proper electricity you know dude even just driving dark like, as fuck. a lot of my drive to work it doesn't have uh road lights and, right. you know, even being in a car with headlights, sometimes I'm like, mm-hmm. fuck, it's dark. So, mm-hmm. like, and that's in the modern day in a car. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, it can be dark. And, and you know, not only are you in the car, but, like, you're in the country. So there's not a lot of light pollution and there's not a lot of, like, tall buildings and yeah. shit. Casting further shadows. Yeah, that's true. So... You know, add what you know to the other thing that you know, and you get super dark. Extra dark. (laughs) Extra dark. So, a lot of these major streets were lined with temporary lodging houses known as DOS houses, and we'll get into those. And decrepit, longer-term dwellings with furnished rooms, Mm quote-unquote, for rent. These furnished rooms were eight by eight feet, tiny little things, and vermin infested, complete with crumbling, leaky ceilings, mildewy walls, and often broken windows, which may hold an entire family. That sounds terrible. Yeah. So our final victim, Mary Kelly, mm-hmm. is... uh the only victim that was staying in one of these rooms during her murder. Everyone else was murdered in full public. So the temporary lodging houses, the DOS Mm -hmm. houses, would offer a single bed for those who couldn't afford a furnished room. For four pence a night, you could... Stay on a hard, flea-ridden mattress in a crowded, stinking dormitory. Oh, that's nice. Or for eight pence, you could buy a similarly situated bed with a wooden partition around it. But it was a double bed. Nice. So, lodgers had access to a communal kitchen. Which was open to the public all day and late into the night. Meaning that you had to bring your own food or did they have food? Yeah. 
Although I think that I think that some like offered food for purchase. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, but basically, people would use that communal kitchen to cook small meals, drink tea and beer with whoever came in. Okay, it was a social place. Yeah, all right. Uh, some lodging houses were single sex, and some were mixed. And all of these, all of these are going to come back up in these stories. Okay. But the mixed lodging houses were considered the most morally degenerate. Right, because... Because people could fuck. Yeah, probably could and probably did. I mean, shit, times is hard. Oh, absolutely. Times is hard. That's the best place you could possibly, like... Yeah. And again, you know, like, just just off the top of, like, just thinking about the women that, that I've read about... Mm-hmm. Um, that I've got outlined for for our future episodes, you know, there were women that preferred the single sex DOS houses. I could see how both would happen. I could imagine myself in that scenario. I could both see wanting to be like in a, a only women's, you know, and feeling safer. But then also I could mm-hmm. I, I could also see like, well, got to live my life. So what it usually was is whether or not they were single. Yeah. So Polly preferred single sex because at the time of her death, I believe that she wasn't seeing anyone. Yeah. I, be- I believe. I may be forgetting. But I-, I-, I believe that she wasn't seeing anyone at the time of her death. And so she preferred single sex lot- DOS houses right. because, yeah, it was safer. And she'd stay with, you know, a couple of girls that she knew and then, like, you know, the woman that we're going to talk about after this, Annie Chapman, she had a boyfriend, a man partner, that she would stay in the mixed DOS houses with. Right. I can totally see that. Yeah. Because you couldn't take your boyfriend to a single sex DOS house. But, you know, if you're staying with your boyfriend... You know. Well, I mean, I'm sure it adds an element of safety, too. Like, I was just imagining that. Like, again, if, if you know, Sam and I were to end up in that situation, especially, you know, especially oh, yeah. with him being as big as he is, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd feel much safer <laughs> not separating. Yeah. I mean, like, it's literally what I was talking about earlier about how, you know, vagrant women were susceptible to violence, particularly sexual violence. So a lot of them partnered with a man out of necessity. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's <laughs> that's basically, like, the sleeping situation of the DOS houses. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, there's that there's that public kitchen. So, like I said, there's these, like, sociolo- like, these early sociologists, these early social reformers who would sit in, you know, basically gonzo journalism <laughs> style oh, of, of going in and, like, sitting in these uh, kitchens, public mm-hmm. areas in the DOS houses. And they were particularly appalled by the vulgarity and rudeness, even from the children. Even from the children. <laughs> Which I think is so funny. Just like, these people swear a lot. Their children also swear a lot. <laughs> these people swear a lot. But... Their children also swear a lot. Which is <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the greatest condemnation was for the violence, the filth, the overflowing toilets, and the candid displays of nakedness, sex, drunkenness, and child neglect. That last part that sounds frequent. worse. Yeah. Yeah. The 
the the level of sleaze of, of just like banging in the hallway and then all that like just now like yeah. there's but like the thing is this was a time when a whole family would share a one bedroom furnished room nakedness and sex in front of your family was actually just a thing yeah and that's probably i think you're right you're right and a, a lot it's of super my uncomfortable. reaction to that is definitely cutlery i'm uncomfortable yeah. with it no way man uh-uh. <laughs> but, but you're but right that was kind of just how things were dang so basically these dos houses were they were not for just like regular poor people they were for vagrants these dos houses provided respite between the workhouse casual wards and sleeping on the street right you could find four pence to stay the night in some place that you were allowed to sleep inside and you could be drunk and you could leave when you wanted to and you could leave when you wanted to. Nice. That's yeah. That sounds like <laughs> yeah. a pretty good combo in Victorian era England. You mean I can, <laughs> yeah. I can be drunk here and leave when I want? <laughs> yeah. So Whitechapel alone had two hundred and thirty-three DOS houses, which housed eighty-five hundred homeless people. How many homeless does that work out to per DOS house? That seems like a lot. God, fuck! Now I have to do math. Better you right. than me. 8,500 over 233. Uh, 30 to 40 people. Yeah. A sizable collection. Which, I mean, like I said, crowded dormitories, single, mm -hmm. you know, mattress bed, like these flat mattresses, like. Right, I'm wondering how much square footage that equates to per person. You take the entire top floor. Like, how many people would have to be living in my house in order for it to feel like a DOS house level, you know, concentration of people, I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I think basically, like, take, like, a square coffee shop and put a, a floor above the coffee shop that's the same space. And now the coffee shop is a communal kitchen. And the floor above the coffee shop is lined wall to wall as tight as you can pack them. Pallet beds. Like flat, yeah, uh, you know, single person coffin with sized a wooden partition beds. between them? No, only, only for the double beds. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the double beds got a wooden partition between them because they were assumed to be for people who was fucking... Smart assumption. <laughs> and that's how you fit 30 to 40 people. <laughs> oh my god. No wonder people died young in Victorian era England. They were probably anxious to get out of here. <laughs> so, you know, actually, speaking of dying young, the life expectancy for a healthy person was actually pretty similar to the life expectancy of a healthy person today. Oh, no. Their suffering was the really reason... prolonged. Well, so... 
<laughs> so the reason for the earlier average life expectancy was because a lot more people died younger due to illness, hunger, accidents, etc. And that's basically an indication of how bad the poverty was. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. When you are really, really, really fucking likely to lose your children, that pulls the life expectancy down. Right, even if the uh, age, the maximum age that any one person is capable of reaching is not necessarily any lower. If there's a lot of accidental mm -hmm. deaths in youth, that average goes down. Yep. The life expectancy average goes down. That makes sense. Yep. Yep. So now, let's get into the thing. The thing! Which is the uh, sex work and just sexism. Yeah. Funny how those two go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. Because, so here's the thing. We are not anti-sex work. If that is a route that you want to pursue... Get it, whatever. Yeah. Live your life. But the presumption of sex work was a way of oppressing women in poverty. Right. Well, of course, because regardless of our opinion on it, it is stigmatized. So it's exactly. not like we necessarily... like It's like, oh, you're... You know, you're a stripper, you're a prostitute, you're bad. It's like, well, but we can recognize that socially speaking, again, even today, assuming that somebody is a sex worker of any sort is generally considered an insult. It's stigmatized. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that was the presumption of women in poverty in this time period. Also, though, probably um, somewhat true because sexism means that women have to enter into sexual contract arrangements well, usually and to we'll, get by. We'll get into frequently. that <laughs> because because it's really complicated. Is that our second? It's yep. complicated. I was about to say something, but my glasses are still dirty and it was distracting me. <laughs> so, all right. So we just talked about doll houses. One of the main concerns over DOS houses from police and social reformers was their relationship to sex work, which is obnoxious right. to me. It wasn't their relationship to poverty and their relationship to homelessness and their relationship to people that were like experiencing strife. It was their relationship to sex work. Of course. Which is some Perfect oppressive bullshit. puritanical approach. But like... This series is gonna be the like let's get mad at sexism. The okay, series, cool. <laughs> I'm gonna do it, and also classism. But mm -hmm. you know, everything's tied together. Mm -hmm. So, if a tenant could pay their DOS money, then the housekeeper asked few questions. If you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, after the 1885 Criminal Law Amendment Act. Uh, that enforced the closure of brothels, many sex workers had to work away from where they lived. 
meaning okay, yeah. a double bed was a convenient place to take a John solicited from the street. Right. So even if you didn't necessarily need to live in a DOS house, um, that would be a good place to go. Yeah. And then other sex workers who may choose to sleep in a single bed, but take their customers to dark street corners where they could engage in quick sexual encounters, which often didn't include full intercourse. So basically, DOS houses housed sex work and sex workers. And police and social reformers had a problem with that. Of course they did. Which is obnoxious, but whatever. (laughs) Then to further complicate matters, which is what I wanted to, Uh you know, bring up. Uh, there's the simple problem of defining sex work. Right. On one end of the spectrum is the morally conscientious middle-class wife who lost her virginity to her husband on her wedding night and never strayed. And then on the other end, there's the woman who solicited sex for money from strangers. But in the middle, where most, most people, women in poverty or really lived, most women in the world live, Let's be real. True. Most women in the world live. Have like, lived, will, You know, do. we're talking about, like, Victorian England women in poverty. Yeah. Like, you know, there was the, the standard of the middle class, like, moral Victorian woman. But, like, most women in poverty lived in this middle ground where there were, mi- there were women who coupled with men for the physical and financial security of a relationship. Which may be short-lived or may last years, but was never sanctified in a church. Right. I mean, shit, I've lived with a boyfriend. I live with a boyfriend. Well, and I, or, and, and I should say, too, in the past I have as well, with it being, like, short-lived or... But, uh, I guess I'm just sort of saying, too, who's to define, like... How would right. they know if these women I, were I, living with these men because it was purely, a, you know, to what extent is any relationship a thing of convenience? Right. Well, honestly, like, moving in with your partner because the rent is cheaper if you split it is not an uncommon decision, even, you know, now. Right. At what point, like... <laughs> you know? Yeah. At what point is the line Like, it's like, okay, I like you. I think that I could handle living with you. But also, we should be living together because the rent is cheaper if we split yeah. it. <laughs> um, then, you know, beyond that, there were women who stayed the night with a man who paid for her lodging bed. Again. There were women who accepted a man's groping in exchange for money. There were women who had sex for money until they could find legal work. There were women who worked in a brothel until they became the kept mistress of one of her clients. There were women who accepted a, you know, drink and food from a man who then went back to wherever with him. That's what I'm saying is if you're is 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 particularly in Victorian England, where any fallen woman was a prostitute. Everything that wasn't that middle class lost her virginity to her husband and never strayed. Well, yeah, that's already out the window. Right? That's already, you might as well at that point, really, because if even if you're not. You know, if they're going to so heavily stigmatize and then accuse, right, what what would be the point in not doing it at that point? Like, if you're limited on options and you're already, like, 
Well, and the thing, but the thing is, like, there were plenty of women who didn't because you know they didn't want to, or uh, you know they had that moral. Yeah, I mean that would be a hard thing for me to do. I think you know they had that Victorian morality that made them, you know, that made them stigmatize sex work as well so they didn't want to do or or just because they just didn't want to like there were plenty of women who just didn't actually engage in sex for money but again you know staying with a man who you weren't married to might have been considered sex work to victorian england which is so weird but because any quote-unquote fallen woman was a prostitute that's just how they saw yeah women impoverished women you know so newspapers trying to entice readers called lodging houses brothels in all but name and the public was happy to believe it that said at the same time the commissioner of the metropolitan police which was basically the police force that was covering the whitechapel Mm -hmm. murders uh, Sir Charles Warren estimated that there were about 1,200 prostitutes in Whitechapel's lodging houses. Now, if roughly a third of the 8,500 people staying in the lodging houses at the time were women, then even according to the police, the majority weren't of these women weren't engaging in any form of sex work Even based on all. their statistics at the time. Gotta love yep. that. Like, even according to the police, most women, most vagrant women in Whitechapel DOS houses were not engaged in sex work. At all. So. At all. They were really bad at math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, basically the problem here is these stories of Victorian England were written by middle class authoritarian men. Women had no voice, the poor had no voice, and so if you were a poor woman, you you didn't even make sound. (laughs) Oh my god. Didn't even make sound. So, (laughs) So there was the belief that Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes. But there is no evidence whatsoever to support that three of his five victims ever engaged in any form of sex work. So, a majority. Yes. Police assumed that these women had had solicited the wrong man for sex and that Jack the Ripper used this to lure them to their deaths. And the world accepted this story. But there's never been evidence to support this. Well, and I don't know if it's just something that was added... Again, so there's a reason I used the word archetype earlier, right? When we were talking about, like, mm-hmm. sort of uh, the Jack the Ripper case being, like, a pivotal, uh, like, socially pivotal kind of thing. Um, and it's mm-hmm. because I don't know if it's part of the original, like, what I call Jack the Ripper mythos or, like, something that's mm-hmm. been added to, like, my, you know, to a- added later through all the different kind of interpretations and representations. But I always felt there was a component of, like, Jack the Ripper, like, in t- like having a moral problem with prostitutes and, like, cleaning up the street. Like, almost this sort of, you know, uh, uh, benevolent motivation for doing it. Yeah. So, I... That is, that is my biggest beef with this case. 
is is how so like well and i've definitely seen that storyline regurgitated i know that mm mm-hmm yeah so so this is this is kind of some territory that we're not really going to cover because we're not really covering jack the ripper we're covering the women who were victimized by jack the ripper but i do feel like this is a little bit relevant oh it's absolutely relevant (laughs) and this is that Mm -hmm. what you just like what you just brought up is my biggest problem with this story because like nobody deserves to be murdered Mm -hmm. that like that's that's nobody deserves to be murdered like how are we how are we deciding who whose life is valuable you know especially from a more modern perspective where even the people who commit the most heinous and atrocious deeds you know there still is a social value in them being alive. Like, even if you, even if you Mm -hmm. believe in evil and if you believe in sin and, you know, that kind of thing. And even if you believe in punishment Mm -hmm. or an eye for an eye or retribution, the simple fact that like, yeah, people can be better understood when they're not dead. That, Mm -hmm. that in of itself is a major boon to society more so than the. yeah. 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 And I mean, sure, it gets complicated and like it's way complicated, like in 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 like terrorists. Like, I even have complicated McVay. feelings about it. Like I had some serious emotions. Yeah. You know, we talked about not really getting into it, but everything that happened on the sixth and watching that on TV and yeah. not seeing violence. There was there was some part of me that was like, no, no, they done fucked up. Yeah, why? Yeah, why? yeah. No, I, I for the first time in my life was angry. Oh, police that there brutality, was no police right? Police violence. <laughs> I was like, "Where's the police brutality?" <laughs> yeah, but we digress. You know, like, and this is, and this is one of the biggest ways that this story is still reflective to this day. Like, absolutely, there's the way that we treat women and the way that we treat poor people. But there's also, you know, basically to bring this back to what our podcast is about. So, like, so like Gary Ridgway, mm-hmm. the Green River Killer, he killed like fifty women. Like, he killed a fuckload of women. Yeah, that's a lot. Do you know why he got away with it for so long? Because he was killing sex workers. Nobody noticed they were missing. And why do you think we talk about Ted Bundy so much? Because he killed white college girls. Right. Girls that people would immediately miss. Like, exactly. Girls that were noticed missing immediately. Seen as socially valuable. Considered socially valuable. So... You know, that's that's the reason that this story still resonates is literally because. Well, we still live in a society that perpetuates it. It makes it that mm-hmm. makes it a narrative that even can play out. Yeah, it's the um, it's the concept of the less dead, which I'm not sure if we've ever talked about on this podcast. No, I don't think so. Last podcast on the left talks about it a lot, but it's um. It's a concept of society deems these people already dead. Right. They've already been they've already been written so, off. Sex workers, particularly women of color. Right. If you've already been written off and deemed socially invaluable and you don't have any connections to a family or anything, then 
why would society care? Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, like, these women still do have families. Yeah. And these women still have value. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that is that is the thing that I hate the most about Jack the Ripper, which is why I never wanted to cover Jack the Ripper himself, is because he does not deserve the clout that has been given to him. He did not clean up the street. He murdered women. <laughs> right. Right. And so that's... That's why I thought it was really awesome to have the opportunity to tell these stories. Whether or not they were sex workers. Most of them weren't. Well, I think that getting the, <laughs> you know, again, not like feeding into the stigma, but getting the story straight is important. And I think that that's what really resonates yeah. with me is just how on a societal level, you know, I just think what the particulars of what happened to these women, I think I'm excited to hear about because even just knowing the overview of the story, it really solidifies how societally it's not that different. It sounds, everything sounds pretty familiar from what I've seen and experienced in my life. And so mm -hmm. sort of getting a different picture of like how, what I'm used to literally creates the circumstance that makes it easier for me to get murdered and socially devalued. It's really interesting. Right. I think about that a lot. I think about if I were to get murdered, like, Am I successful and pretty and white enough for them to be like, oh, she was so important. Oh, she was, look at all of the cool stuff that she was going to do with her life. Or am I neurodivergent uh, enough that they're just going to bring up like. Oh, she was fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, are they just going to bring yeah. up my mental illnesses and write me off as, oh, well, this is why yeah, she like, got Yeah, of murdered. course. She put herself in some crazy. Like, I yeah. wonder, I wonder about yeah. that all the time. <laughs> Like, where would I be as far as, like, how would the media cover right. my case? I think that's a question that's <laughs> it's worth uh, thinking about. <laughs> Maybe not too much, though, because I don't know what you're going to do about that. Yeah, don't think about it too much. So, oh, right. Okay. Police assumed that these women mm -hmm. were sex workers because they were right. impoverished women. Like society do at that time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Any fallen woman was a prostitute, period. End of story. And they basically, they told, they believed the story. They told the newspapers this story. The world accepted this story that these women had solicited the wrong man for sex. And Jack the Ripper's MO was to go and find sex workers who were soliciting. And then murder them. And then he would use this to lure them to their deaths. But there's never been any evidence to support this. There were no screams. Like, nobody heard any screams. And this is a crowded right. city. You'd think someone would hear something. And, and these autopsies showed that all of these women had been killed in a reclining position. Three of these women were known to sleep on the street and did not have DOS money for lodging the night of their murders. Hmm. The final victim was killed in her bed by following the sexist and classist assumption that all of these victims were sex workers on the prowl. Police failed to reach the more obvious conclusion that these women were actually murdered in their sleep. <sighs> Jack the Ripper wasn't hunting for prostitutes. He was hunting 
For sleepy women. For sleeping homeless women. That's lovely. Because they were easy to kill. Right. I mean, anyone's easy to kill when they're asleep. That's true. Especially if you're just slicing their throat, which is how he killed them. Like, he sliced their throat to kill them, and then he pulled out their bits. Yeah. mm -mm. (laughs) Nope. Not not here for that. Um, so I guess let's I, I guess we'll wrap up here. God, this is gonna be a six part episode or six part series at least. God, I hope I don't have to cut any of the stories of the women themselves in half. That's a that's a long series. Mm-hmm. All right. Oops. So oops. <laughughs> <laughs> I mean I I don't think it's invalid at all. No. And I don't think any of our listeners mind as long as we actually progress through it, keep up. Yeah. As opposed to a several month hiatus. But since we're in the middle of a series, we'll be like, we gotta, we gotta keep going. That's true. I think that will provide a little bit of motivation for continuation. All right. So look forward to new episodes less than several months apart. I promise. Less than several months apart. We swear. I was thinking, I was thinking every other week. Yeah. Would be a good thing to. I agree. To get back into. Yeah. Because I think that I can handle that and you can handle that. I think I hopefully can handle that. I think I can handle that. (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. I mean, look, you need to force yourself to take fucking chill the fuck out time. So this is you forcing yourself to take chill the fuck out time. Yeah. So next episode, we'll actually do like a quick, uh, basically what actually happened with the Whitechapel murders and wrap up with kind of the difficulty with the investigation itself. Okay. And then we'll start doing the individual women's stories in the episodes after that. Perfect. Cool. All right. What do we want to say? Our social media is Palm Pitch Pod for everything. Yep. Hashtag it's complicated. Hashtag it's complicated for real. Oh my God. If you want to donate to our Patreon, that's rad. The more money we get, the more more likely we are to not have to uh, make Sunshine work a job that she hates. That's, we're so far from actually making money, like making a living off of this. But that would be so rad. A bajillion light years away. Quality would improve so much if we were there. That's true. I could hire somebody to like, I don't know, help me. Help me! Help me! Yeah. Uh, If you feel the need to hit us up, Palm Pitch Pod. And I think that's it. I think so. All right. Okay. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Sad game.